I think that living without answers is a really hard thing. Human beings, we like to put things in a box and kind of move on. There's an answer out there. Somebody knows something. Um, and if that's just seeing him or um, the phone call that was made, there's, there's an answer out there. You clearly don't believe that he took his own life. I clearly do not believe that. Nope. I do not believe that. Um, not, a, not at all. I've never taken that, I've never taken, like, I don't want it to believe that it's not suicide. It's really been like, what, what has happened? And then let me sort my emotions out from there. You know, like, let me work through maybe, you know, if there was regret or, and so I have really been very, very open to whatever answers may be placed in front of me. You fight for the people that you love um, and you fight, you know, and I love his family and I loved him more than anything. And you fight for those answers so that you can have some kind of peace. And I think that everybody in this world would want that. On the evening of May 16, 2006, Ray Rivera was sitting in his office at his desk working from home. His cell phone rang and a short conversation ensued, and we are left wondering who was on the other line. Oh shit, Ray says. Then he grabs his keys, runs down the stairs, and out the front door of his Baltimore home. He parks in a lot just a few blocks from the Stansbury and Associates building where he works during the week. But instead of heading into that boring old building where Stansbury was located, he turns, and in the other direction stands a large hotel which boasts a name that translates from Italian to mean beautiful view. But what happened on top of the Belvedere that evening was anything but. I'm your host, Michael, and this is Strange and Unexplained. Belvedere Hotel in Baltimore was once known as the crown jewel of Baltimore. Well, at least that's according to its own website. But for Ray, there was no reason for him to be at the Belvedere that evening. But somehow, he ended up there anyways. Ray was described by his family and peers as a happy person. A good person who was honest and worked hard. He was an aspiring writer and more specifically a screenplay writer. His ultimate dream was to write and direct his own film. He was living in Southern California with his new wife, Allison, when his career came to a standstill. He was not making hits with his current writings and was finding it hard to break through, as many do in the film business. He reached out to his old high school buddy, who had been begging him to come work for him. Enter Porter Stansberry, stage left. Porter and Ray had met each other around the age of 15, and had become really good friends. When they graduated high school, Ray went off to Hollywood to try to become someone, and Porter had started a financial advising company. Now, I, now, granted, I don't know much about finance, but this is how his business broke down, at least in the, in the terms that I can understand. Stransparent Associates was a financial research company that gave advice on buying, selling, and trading in stocks. 
They do the research, crunch the numbers, and then publish writings advising on how to proceed, meaning to buy or not to buy, basically. And apparently, they are not very good at it. (laughs) When Ray went to work for Porter, his first mission was cleaning up and restoring the company's public image. According to the Baltimore Sun, Stansberry had published a special report that told investors they would double their money invested, but instead, the stock plummeted and tons of money was lost. A legal battle lasted four years between Stansberry and the SEU, and eventually the firm was ordered to pay $1.5 million in retributions. So when Ray arrives in Baltimore, leaving sunny California, he and his new wife, Allison, knew it would be a little bit of a difficult start. During an interview in the new Netflix Unsolved Mysteries episode on Ray, which is the first episode of the uh, new Unsolved Mysteries installments, highly suggest you watch this, um, Allison talks about how they agreed to give it 24 months or two years in Baltimore, and let's see what happens, right? But unfortunately for Allison, two years later, she would be making that decision by herself. The two were in love and talked about starting a family, Allison swears that Ray was excited about the future and had no indications of suicidal tendencies or mental illness. The night Ray went missing, Allison was out of town for work, and a colleague of hers, Claudia, had stayed overnight in the spare bedroom. And I know your first thought. Woman staying the night, wife out of town, he in the ends up dead. Sounds like he had secrets to me. However, this friend of Allison's was only at the home for the night and was gone the next day. Technically, she stayed in the house by herself, as Ray never returned that night. This is how it was known that Ray received a call and hurried out of the house. Like Makita Brotman wrote in An Unexplained Death, her book about Ray's death, she, Claudia, is merely an extra in this plot. So she will now exit stage right. So Allison, after finishing her workday and checking into her hotel, decides to phone Ray but he doesn't answer. She calls back again hours later before heading to bed. Still no answer. She calls Claudia and asks if Ray was home and Claudia looks around the house only to discover he has not come back. Allison pays it no mind as she believes he was probably at the office working late. He was apparently on a deadline so none of this seemed out of character. However, when she wakes the next morning and is still unable to get in touch with Ray, Allison begins to worry but is still calm, believing Ray is caught up in work. She calls Claudia again to ask if he ever came home that night, and again, Claudia searches the house, calling for Ray, and finds it empty. Allison tells her not to worry. Claudia returns to New York while Allison starts on her way back to Baltimore from Richmond, Virginia. On her drive, Allison starts calling all of Ray's family members and asking if they had seen or heard from Ray but she can't find anyone who has seen him. When she arrives home, she notices his Invisalign retainers laying near an open bottle of soda and assumes he did not leave with the intention of staying gone all night. She spends the day calling and talking to family and friends. She then calls the local hospitals, asking about John Doe's or anyone who fits his description, to no avail. On May 17th, a missing persons report is filed for Ray. His mother, his brother, in-laws, and anyone who cared for him starts showing up at Allison and Ray's Baltimore home. They offer assistance in looking for Ray. They head down to town to hand out flyers and ask around to see if anyone knows him. 
At this time, Porter had put up a $1,000 reward for information on Ray's whereabouts. Porter, you know, his business partner. On May 22nd, after hearing nothing from the police or anyone who knows Ray, his family is still out on foot looking for him. And they spot Allison's car, which he was driving that night. Allison had acquired a rental to go to Virginia. So Allison's car was parked in a parking lot just a block or so from the hotel. But the parking lot was also close to the offices where he worked. So the placement of the car was not really that out of place. When they inspected the vehicle, they found it had received a ticket on the morning of the 17th, indicating it had been parked since the night of the 16th, the last time anyone saw Ray. So with a new big clue, the family started searching near the parking lot and around the neighborhood and still found dead ends. Then, by May 26th, when Ray had now been missing for days, a group of co-workers that had volunteered to help look for Ray decided to revisit the parking lot where the car was found. This time, they walked to the very top of the parking garage and looked out over every ledge. One side of the parking structure actually overlooks the second floor on the back side of the Belvedere Hotel. It was a part of the hotel used for conference, an office space, and it was abandoned at this time. The Belvedere had been converted into condominiums, but much of the first and second floor was still used for events and offices. On the roof of this space, there seemed to be a quite small hole. There were also flip-flops laying on top of the roof. Obviously, this is a big red flag. So the men alerted the police of what they had found. And on May 26th, Ray's body was found inside a conference room of the Belvedere. His body was badly broken and already starting to decay as it had been there for about eight days now. This did cause some issues with his autopsy, as some of the evidence was lost over those days. But the medical examiner did decide to mark the death as undetermined. Even though the police said he committed suicide. She did this in an attempt to keep the case open so that it would continue to be investigated. Upon examination of his body, which of course was shattered due to the impact of a fall, the ME did notice that the way Ray's legs were broken were very inconsistent with a fall. Now the Belvedere, as said before, is 13 stories. Ray was found on the second floor, meaning he fell the height of about 11 stories. However, the hole was also about 45 feet out from the edge of the roof. So in order for him to have jumped that distance out, he would have had to be running about 11 to 13 miles per hour. Which of course is possible, especially for a man who is 6 foot 5. But that means he not just jumped, but backed up to the front of the hotel sprinted across the roof, and leapt to his death. In flip-flops, mind you. Now, although that is an unusual way for someone to commit suicide, it's not unheard of. But a more logical explanation would be he jumped from a ledge around the 11th floor window. So there is a small ledge that goes around the 11th floor, but the windows are only about half the size of normal windows, and most of them don't even open. Also, in order to access the windows on the 11th floor, he would have had to go through someone's private housing area, and no witnesses claimed to have seen him. 
Ray's phone, glasses, and flip-flops were found on the top of the building near the hole he had created. The phone and glasses had not been broken or even scratched. However, his shoes were broken. One flip-flop was, rather. One of the straps was pulled out of the shoe. However, a silver-inscribed money clip that Allison had given Ray on the day of their wedding was not with him and has never been recovered. So I want to take a minute to talk about where these items were found on this roof of this conference center. So there is a hole that is only big enough for a man to go through vertically, okay? Especially a man who is six foot five, 260 pounds. There's no way he was laying horizontal going through this hole or even, or even turned in any way. He had to go feet first or head first, uh, presumably feet first, right? Now, around this entry hole, that is where his cell phone and his flip-flops were found. The cell phone completely unbroken, unfazed, unscratched, nothing wrong with it. How does a cell phone fall from that height and not be scratched? Also, how does it not just go through the hole with him along with his flip-flops? It makes, I mean, maybe his flip-flops could fall off during the fall. I, I get that and maybe land on the roof, but the phone, it just seems strange, right? And then where's the money clip? So these are what, this is what we know. These are the facts. So let's get into some theories, okay? There were a few other somewhat suspicious items found. So when Ray's home office was searched, a note was found taped to the back of his laptop. The note is very cryptic, or maybe just a little bit chaotic. Um, it's a small typed page that has a lot of names and movies listed on it. But the weird part is the references to the Freemason Secret Society. The note starts, quote, Dear brothers and sisters, right now around the world, volcanoes are erupting. What an awesome sight. Whom virtue unites, death cannot separate. End quote. Now that last part about virtue is a quote used in Masonic circles. It can be found a lot of times in Latin on Masonic rings. Now, Allison said that Ray had taken an interest into the secret society lately, but that it was more for research purposes, because he was, of course, a writer. But the day before his death, he did meet with a local Freemason at the lodge to discuss how to join the society. However, the man he spoke with said he seemed more interested in the financial side of things, indicating he may have been working on a write-up since he was currently a financial writer. Allison also mentioned how Ray seemed more on edge just before his death, not letting her go anywhere alone and always worrying about her. That, but that could be described to me as maybe just a little bit of paranoia in a new city. You know, you move to a new place, you don't, you don't really know a lot about your surroundings, you don't know what's out there. You don't know the neighborhoods. You don't know the, the areas of town. So maybe you would be a little more worried, right? But here's, here's something else that has got to be connected. Um, Allison and Ray's house alarm was set off twice in the week leading up to his death, including the night before he died. And then when the police came out, they said, probably a squirrel. Even though there was evidence 
that one of the downstairs windows of the house had been tampered with. Also, both times it went off was as it was at exactly 1 a.m. in the morning. So, take that as you will. Allison also noted in the documentary the fear in Ray's eyes when the alarm went off. Now, I know it's a scary thing when you think your house may be broken into in the middle of the night, but she said that she'd never seen a man, she'd never seen him with that much fear in his eyes, rather. So in addition to the Freemasonry cryptic writings, um, the burglar alarm going off at the house, there was also a movie mentioned in the note that has given amateur sleuth a reason to, to keep Ray's case alive. The movie was called The Game. And here's the wiki description of that movie. The Game is a 1997 American mystery action thriller film directed by David Fincher, starring Michael Douglas and Sean Penn, and produced by Propaganda Films and Polygram Filmed Entertainment. It tells the story of a wealthy investment banker who is given a mysterious gift by his brother. Participation in a game that integrates in strange ways with his everyday life. As the lines between the banker's real life and the game become more uncertain, hints of a large conspiracy become apparent. In the note, several times, Ray also mentions the game, for instance, in quotes. For uh, Here's some direct quotes from the writing. That was a well-played game. Congratulations to all who participated. I hope you enjoyed it. But it is time to wake up, so here I am. Here's another one. I'd like to welcome those who accepted our invitations for memberships during the game. I couldn't have done it without you. And lastly, I look on this endeavor to find the truth. But for its own sake, in accepting this quest for truth, I hope to awake myself with the help of others and to a man ready and worthy to receive it. Now, read in whole, the note does look like it addresses a secret society and a game that was being played, which Ray apparently beat or finished. Again, though, if you think about it in the sense that Ray was a writer hoping to write the next big box office movie, it seemed less conspiracy theory. And Allison said Ray left notes like the one on the back of his computer everywhere. As a matter of fact, he kept several notebooks in his office with these kinds of jotted down notes. Now, to me, the note on the back of the computer still seems strange. Because the note was probably, I I don't know, like unfolded. It was probably seven inches by like four inches, give or take. And it had a lot of writing on it in very small print. And he had it folded down to probably an inch by two inch um, piece of paper, which was taped to the back of his computer. Does that not seem strange? I mean, I get the man took a lot of notes. I get he had a lot of notebooks. I understand that. He's a writer. He's a creator. He's a creative person. I get that. I do that myself, but I... but. To tape a note to the back of a computer? That doesn't seem right. It just seems weird, especially to fold it down and to hide it. Behind a desktop, mind you, not a laptop where you would fold it down and see it occasionally. So, just trying to give you a little more more details there. Now, Porter Stanberry's name 
is mentioned several times within the note also, giving many people a reason to think that maybe Porter and his friends were hazing the new guy, Ray, and maybe he took it too far. And Ray began to believe he was part of a secret society, and the leap off the roof was his test. However, some believe there is a more logical reason Porter is mentioned so much. We already know his company was in hot water when they brought Ray in to try and fix things. Ray also worked as a videographer for Stansberry and was working on editing videos, so maybe he saw something he wasn't supposed to. Now, Angel, that's Ray's older brother. He thinks that Ray's job is the reason he was killed. He thinks someone killed Ray over bad advice that may have lost them money. Which again, Stansberry at the time <laughs> was pretty damn well known for doing. Allison also believes that Ray's job may have been the reason he was killed, and for good reason. Within an hour of Ray's body being discovered, Stansberry and Associates issued a gag order to all of its employees, so the police couldn't speak to any of them. They lawyered up big time. This being Ray's best friend, you would think he would want to find who did this to him, right? Instead, Porter was never... Porter has never assisted in the investigation, but instead done nothing but stonewall the police. It was found that the call Ray received the night of his disappearance was from the Stansbury building, but came from the switchboard and the extension could not be found. Of course. <laughs> so it was never tra traced directly to anyone and therefore police cannot go any further with it. To this day, no arrest has ever been made, and Ray's case remains unsolved. But the Rivera family hopes that with the new Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix, which features Ray in its first episode, like I mentioned, will hopefully help bring justice and peace to their family. If you or someone you know has any information on this case, you can visit unsolved.com to submit a tip. Now, like many of the cases that I cover on this podcast, this case is infuriating. If you're not infuriated by this case, then you're not paying attention. When I look at the the items left on the roof, you look at... I, I, a lot of people, when they're making conspiracy... I want to back up a second and talk about the note. When a lot of people are making these theories and these suggestions, a lot of people base them around the note. I'm not so sure that the note really is the key to this. I think it's more... It's 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 just more it's Stanberry and Associates. I think this is a more cut and dry thing. I mean, it's obvious. An hour after the body was found, he puts a gag order on the whole company so no one can talk. Straight up lawyered up like nobody's business. That's just, that's obviously a plea of, of not of guilty, but it's very suspicious. I'm not going to say that they're guilty. I'm just saying it's extremely, extremely suspicious. And also, why would a man run a... 11 miles an hour in flip-flops and jump off a roof. It almost seems to me like maybe the whole altercation took place on that second roof, the one that he, quote, fell through. What if they, what if he was beaten on that roof and they busted through the top of the roof and just pushed his body into an unused conference building? It'd be a lot easier than trying to carry him off. And it'd be a lot more subtle than trying to throw him in the street. Just an idea. It's just a thought. Um, it's something that I haven't heard mentioned. 
And it, it may be crazy. It may be very hard to break through this mi- building uh, roof, but it looked like it looked like sheet metal and uh, some some metal framing, but mostly sh- thin sheet metal and insulation to me. It didn't look that difficult to bust through. I think I think a grown man with an axe or a sledgehammer could could break through this roof. And then that would also explain why the hole is only big enough to fit his body through one way. Because why would they want to work too hard to make a big hole? I'm saying they're only going to make the hole big enough to slide his body through there in whatever way that they can. That would also help explain why his legs are broken inconsistent with a fall. Maybe they were broken with a sledgehammer or an axe. Who knows? Right? And I'm just speculating here. I'm just trying to throw out some stuff. A lot of people uh, speculate that, like I said, most of the speculation on this case comes from the note. And people speculate that maybe he uh, got too close with this Freemason investigation. Um, Or maybe he was writing a speech. Um, I don't know how writing a speech is going to get you killed. Um, But looking at the writings and the different quotes that he takes from movies and different inspirations of of his life... It does seem as though it could have been a speech. And I, I mean, I think one can believe that it's a speech and also that it has nothing to do with his murder. And But it may. I, I don't know. Um, I'm very interested if you guys have, have theories. If you like to have a conversation about this, hit me up. Let's talk about it at Sandu Podcast, um, at sandupodcast at gmail.com or at Sandu Podcast on social media. So guys, that's my thoughts on this case. Um, I'm sorry there wasn't a lot of audio. There wasn't a lot of live audio and interviews and things because this death happened uh, so suddenly. Uh, so, so, so suddenly. Came out of the blue. So there, there wasn't a lot of, um, there wasn't even a lot of news coverage that I could find that would be helpful um, in helping break down this case. So... Without further ado, there's only one more person we can turn to now, right? You guessed it, guys. That's Lorne. Let's hear what he has to say in this week's Lorne Synopsis. It's time for Lorne. It's time for Lorne Synopsis. Breaking down the case like... Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. It's time for Lauren. It's time for Lauren synopsis. Breaking down the case like. Breaking down the case like cardboard boxes. What's up, people? Lauren here. Here to get my thoughts on this week's Strange and Unexplained. The very bizarre death of Ray Rivera in Baltimore, Maryland, back in May of 2006. He was the focus of the Unsolved Mysteries reboot, the first episode that they did that you can find on Netflix. Fantastic way to kick off the reboot of Unsolved Mysteries with this case that just had me stumped. I was all over the place with this. You know, they keep presenting information and you're like, you know, I just don't buy that he would have killed himself. He He didn't seem to have any suicidal tendencies he was in a very happy marriage. You could just see the love that his wife had for him. Um, he was a prolific writer. Um, he had a lot of things going for him. And also, he was apparently afraid of heights. And I just don't know if you just do decide to take your own life, do you do it in the scariest way? You know, the, what scares you most being up high? Do you jump off of a massive hotel 
and fall through a roof into a conference room, I don't buy it. How did he even get up there? You know, the, everything about it is just so odd. The camera's not working that night is very odd. The fact that he got a call from where he worked at Stansbury and Associates with Porter Stansbury, his best friend since he was 15 years old, the guy who brought him to Baltimore, Maryland. Um, th that was odd. You know, he, he gets a call from, from Stansbury and Associates, his employer, and then he rushes out of the house and then he isn't found his body isn't found for another eight days and it's badly decomposed and he's apparently either jumped off a building or been pushed off a building. Very, very strange. How, where his body ended up going through that roof to it. It's almost as if he had to have run and jumped to have gotten to where he got. Um, so many things are just so bizarre about it. Um, and it doesn't look great for his, his best friend and, uh, his employer at Porter Stansbury putting a gag order on all of his uh, his whole company making everyone around there hush up about it that looked that looked odd um not not necessarily doesn't mean he necessarily had something to do with it i also found it weird that he only gave put up a thousand dollar reward when he's this big, big financial guy i mean i understand he's had some struggles and he got basically sued for a million and a half dollars for maybe putting out bad information about a stock to invest in um, so I don't know how much money he had, but it just seemed like you would pony up more than a thousand dollars for your best friend of 15 years who ended up, you know, dead or, and it was missing at the time. That's all you can pony up to try and get information when, you know, he's your employee and you, you, like I said, you're this financial guy. Um, the gag order was very weird as well, but then the note, the note threw me for a loop. They found this note taped to the back of his desk his wife's convinced that he wrote that note out that day and then printed it up on a, you know, a sheet of paper in small font, and it was all over the place. And I know, I know he was a creative guy, great writer, as I mentioned, and um, he had a draw to the – he was drawn a little bit to uh, theatrics, I would say. He had a love for cinema, apparently. Um, and there was a lot of stuff about movies on there. So that, that was one thing that, you know, for a second, I can't lie – I started thinking maybe he did commit suicide. He was just a very theatrical person. And if he was going to do it, this would be the way he would do it to keep everybody guessing, you know, like a movie, like a movie script with a wild twist ending. But I just, don't, I can't see that him doing that to his wife that he loved so much. And he wanted to have a family. I don't, I don't buy that. And then, so the, so the, there was the Stansberry thing that, that I was like, Ooh, that doesn't look good. I, mean, I think something, something went wrong. Something went squirrely. He, did something financially that got that Stansbury and Associates into trouble or something along those lines financially and, and he was killed for it. Then the note came out and then I thought suicide because, you know, usually when someone kills himself, they leave a note in that fashion, you know, but maybe not that type of note. But it did have a lot of names of loved ones and stuff on it. But then the Freemason thing on the note threw me for another loop. And I had to look into the Freemasons. I've heard of it, but I never really looked into it. It's a weird kind of... Uh, in the dark society that you're not supposed to know a whole lot about unless you're in it. It's this weird boys club thing. Um, and then one of the first things I saw when I was researching Freemasons is a story from 1826, this guy named William Morgan, who was writing a book about the Freemasons. He had learned about them and he was going to expose them. Um, and he was kind of a town drunk and not really an important person. But, um, when the Freemasons found out that he was going to expose them and write this book about him, he was actually doing an overnighter in jail, I think, or he was on a short stint in jail for public intoxication or something. They actually showed up to the jail, bailed him out, paid for his bond, and then he disappeared. They took him away to never be seen again. And he was allegedly killed by these people, the Freemasons. 
And that just got me thinking, whoa, was that something similar to what was going on? All this talk Ray Rivera said about the Freemasons, he had apparently applied to be a part of them. Were they, did something happen? Did he, were they worried that he was going to expose them? Something along those lines. Now, obviously I'm speculating. I have no, I always feel like I have to say, like, I don't want anybody, I don't want Porter or, you know, Porter Stansberry or the Freemasons or anything getting upset by me saying that I think they did it. It's just, you just have to speculate these things. Like anything's a possibility in this one. And I think the low, honestly, the, the least a uh, likely scenario for me is that Ray killed himself. I just don't, I don't see it. I, I, you know, everybody in his family to me was very convincing in that he would not do this. Um, something happened, something happened. Um, I don't know if it, it would involve the, the uh, Freemasons or Stansberry and associates, but something happened. He was into some stuff and maybe took it a little too far. And, and uh, yeah, Unfortunately, I do think he was killed, but I don't know that we'll ever find out the truth. Hopefully, with all of the exposure that this case is getting now with uh, Unsolved Mysteries and podcasts like this, um, somebody will come forward, you know, and uh, get some more information. But yeah, that's my thoughts. It's a crazy case, Michael. Um, and I don't know if you guys know or not, but I never get to hear his episode prior to doing this. So I don't know how much of this he's already talked about, but uh Nonetheless, that's my thoughts on it. Um, very fascinating. And uh, yeah, we'll see you guys next week. All right, Lauren, thank you very much for that synopsis. And thank you for a little bit of uh, Freemason history as well. That's a very interesting case. Maybe we'll have to look into that guy uh, that was going to write the book on the Freemasons. Although I feel like there's been a few books on the Freemasons um, to come out. Maybe I need to get one look into them a little bit further. I was actually asked to join uh, the Freemasons about six years ago. I had this guy that I worked with that was just always asking me to come to the meetings. It's just like, you should come. You should come check it out. I think you'll like it. I'm like, I don't think so, man. I'm not really not really into the whole boys club thing. I'm not really sure what's going on there. Um, nor did I have the time at that time to, to put put toward anything like that. Um, but anyways, neither here nor there. Guys, I want to thank you for listening. Uh, I want to thank you for supporting the show any way that you can, whether it be on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash S&U podcast, um, or you can search Strange and Unexplained. It's kind of hard to find, but if you have a hard time finding it on Patreon for whatever reason, there is a link at the bottom of every single episode where you can click and it will take you directly to the Patreon page. And for just $3 a month, guys, you get early access to all of these episodes, which are released on Thursdays instead of Mondays, as well as access to two other shows that I do, one being The Palette Cleanser and one being Strange Shorts. Um, and I alternate those two shows. every So every other week, you'll get one or the other. I mean, you'll get one every week, but you, you understand what I'm saying, right? Anyways, at this time, I want to give a shout-out to some new patrons of mine and I am super thankful that you guys are on board. Thank you so much. I want to give a huge shout to S. West and Sasha for coming on in the last week. Thank you guys so much. You came on at the $5 tier, so you guys will be getting your exclusive Strange and Unexplained sticker in the mail very, very soon. Um, guys, if you can't afford to pledge monthly on Patreon, um, for whatever reason, you, a great way to help the show is to leave a review. You can leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher or, or wherever you listen, uh, well, most places that you listen. 
Um, but that's a great way to help the show, as well as just telling your friends, downloading, subscribing, all of that stuff. It helps the show greatly. Um, but I want to give a shout out to two new reviews I got from Australia. I'm going right down on the mic. Uh, let's see who we got here. We got Nikki from Brisbane, Australia. She says, hello from Brisbane. Love listening to your show. Thank you very much. I love listening to you guys' accents. Um, even though you probably don't like ours as much because not that good. I say ours like because of me and Lawrence. Um, and true crime guys were kind of notoriously uh, known for being bad at accents, I guess. <laughs> we, it's a fun thing we do. We just we, we just don't give a shit. We have fun with it. But also, I want to give a shout out to B83, uh, who says, Five stars, a must listen. Love the delivery. Awesome podcast. Do yourself a favor and listen, mate. Okay? So that's two Aussies telling it to you straight Aussies don't bullshit okay they don't bullshit with each other they give it to each other straight okay that's what Aussies do I learned that but anyways uh if, if you think otherwise or you just want to talk to me about this case or about any case that I've done look us up on social media at s and u podcast on Instagram Twitter and strange and unexplained on Facebook guys you can send me a message on there if you have a case suggestion or you want to reach out to me and tell me the show sucks. Whatever it is, I really don't care. I don't discriminate. It's nice to get mail, right? Stuff to read. Um, but yeah, so that's pretty much it, guys. I want to thank you guys for listening. As always, just by listening to this podcast, you greatly help support the show. You are one more download. I appreciate that very much. So guys, I will see you next week with another strange and unexplained case. So remember, be strange. Just don't be a stranger.